Welcome back to the Talking Points Summer Season Special. We hope you enjoy revisiting all of the gorgeous conversations with our Season 1 guests. For our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this episode of Talking Points contains the names of people who have passed. Please pause now if you'd prefer not to hear their names. The Page family have given Bangara Dance Theatre permission to use their names for the purpose of this interview. And just a trigger warning for this episode, we discuss issues around suicide. So if you'd prefer not to listen, please press pause now. Welcome to Talking Points, a ballet and dance podcast where we speak with some of the most extraordinary and famous dancers, artistic directors and choreographers. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today I'm speaking with Bangara's Associate Artistic Director, the incredible Frances Rings. A descendant of the Kakatha people, Frances was born in Adelaide and spent her childhood travelling, dancing and living all around Australia while her father worked on the railways. However, it was a teacher at her boarding school in Queensland that spotted her talent and encouraged her to audition for NASDA, the National Aboriginal and Islander Skills Development Association. And so, at 18, Frances boarded a Greyhound bus and travelled the 12 hours to Sydney. In this beautifully raw and personal interview, Frances talks about her journey into dance, her incredible career with Bangara, and finding confidence in her own body. But Frances talks about more than that. Her onstage connection with the late Russell Page, becoming a mum, and the pressure, but also the importance, of not only being a female leader, but a First Nations female leader in dance in Australia. Firstly, where are you calling in from? I am actually in Howard Springs in the Northern Territory at the Howard Springs Quarantine Facility with the company. We're in quarantine for two weeks so that we can enter Queensland and so we can complete our our season at QPAC uh, of our main stage work for this year, Sansong. Yeah, so we're... (laughs) We're here. This is our second day. Uh, We're surviving. We're doing good. Uh, The dancers are all great. And the whole company's there in uh, lockdown. So our fellow neighbours across from us are getting some great entertainment every day watching (laughs) Bangara do How lucky them. (laughs) Free tickets. I know. (laughs) That's actually uh, a win for them to be in isolation with Bangara. The Bangara quarantine show. (laughs) So good. Look, I obviously oh, want to talk yes. a lot about um, Sansong and the premiere in Sydney before yeah. the chaos um, ensued. But um, yeah. first, I just wanted to go back a little bit and ask where your love of dance came from. I cannot remember a time when I haven't been in love with dance as a form, as a cultural gift. You know, it's just been something that has been my first language of communication and my way of how I made sense of the world around me was through movement, through dance, through choreography. And, yeah, that's always kind of been a a really big part of my life. And, you know, even before any sort of formal training, my father, you know, said I would you know, be in the backyard creating these little productions and dressing my siblings up in costumes of whatever bits of material and curtain and um, things were laying around and creating these big designs and staging these shows. 
I mean, I didn't even know at that stage that it could be a career and that you could actually make that your job. And I don't think I realised that until much, much later on when I was fast forward to uh, year 11 when I was doing my HSC and it was the first year that HSC dance was brought in. So I signed it up as one of my electives and we had a fantastic dance teacher actually. And she was like, well, if you're going to see dance and you, you know, you've got to see the best and where, and this was, we lived in Ipswich at this stage. So I had moved from South Australia to Western Australia. And now we're in Queensland. My dad worked on the railways and we had a very transient upbringing, but um yeah, at this stage I was in Ipswich and my dance teacher at Bundamba High School took us to Sydney to see Cats at mm-hmm. the Theatre Royal. Oh, wow. That performance was incredible. And um, at that stage it might have been maybe Marina Pryor or, but there was somebody who was Grizabella and it was, yeah. I was, I was I trying remember to think just that Andrew Lloyd Webber era. That, yeah. was, that was a lot of people's inspiration. Mm. Yeah, well, it was the first time that Cats was, uh, I think it was performed in Australia. So, you know, we were seeing this incredible, like I didn't know dancers could move their bodies in that way and, you know, that the way that they just um, transformed and the music and the set was incredible and I just fell in love and I thought, oh, wow, if this is a career, then I'm going to mm-hmm. do it. <laughs> You had been born on the west coast of South Australia. So I was wondering how you made it all the way to NASDA, which is based in Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Um, And a series of really fortunate um, little, you know, events had happened and moving around and having to make new friends and learn new systems of education. And I just kind of gave up on academics and I just thought, I am going to make something of my life. So very fortunate to me, um, Sydney Saltner, who is a Bangara alumni and is now the director of the youth program at Bangara. He was in his, uh, he was at my boarding school the year before me and um, it was in his first year at NASDA. So our speech and drama teacher said, oh, look, there's, there's a college in Sydney where you know, Indigenous students can go and study dance and, you know, learn about culture. And I was like, oh, my God, really? So, you know, we filled out the application form together and, um, yeah, and uh, after I finished my exams, I was on the bus and wow. rocked up to Sydney. And, I mean, back then, you just kids just travelled. I think we just did we're far less strict with yeah. <laughs> with our children than what we are now <laughs> because I was only 17 when I got on the bus from Queensland and sorry there is a big when there are an air base um do you know I can hear it <laughs> a big like aircraft yeah. is it <laughs> yeah the whole place shakes when they go over I mean had you been exposed to Indigenous or First Nations dance? No, no, not. No. I had, you know, um, some beautiful aunties and uncles who'd taken us out, you know, hunting and, you know, and who spoke language and stuff. But I'd never seen, you know, cultural dance or um, or ceremony or, you know, even from the Torres Strait Islands. I didn't even know that. I think when I went to boarding school and I met Torres Strait Islanders, that's when I first found out there was another Indigenous people, that there were two Indigenous peoples of Australia. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, but that's growing up in the 
70s and 80s, I guess. Yeah, but, that, um, that yeah. exposure. People didn't talk about it. Mm. Yeah, they didn't, yeah. And you kind of just learnt, you know, about the, um, you know, about the Western, um, you know, experience of Australia and, um, you know, any sort of First Nations or, you know, experiences were always really negative and, um you know, I was really shy. I, I think there was a lot of shame and it wasn't just myself. There was, you know, a whole generation of black fellows that were just, it was hard to kind of find the role models. I think in sport, like people, you know, were always like, oh, yeah, you know, Indigenous people, are they're good at sport. You know, you either do that or, you know, you become a housewife, have kids, and but there wasn't really anything <laughs> else that was offered. Yeah. But I had some really beautiful teachers that, you know, like my speech and drama teacher who just said, oh, look, you know, this is an amazing opportunity and, you know, you have a gift and, you know, you should definitely pursue this. And I think when you're given those little glimmers of of light, you just gravitate and you go, well, society thinks I need to do this or, you know, that I'm not going to make something of my life and, um, that I'm not going to complete year 12 or, you know, I'm not going to go to university, but I'm going to do something with my life that's meaningful and um, be able to offer young people, you know, um, an opportunity that I didn't get when I was growing up. So I wanted to take you back to 17-year-old Francis on the bus from Ipswich, is it? Ipswich to Sydney. Uh, I was... I was uh, finished my exams and got on the bus to Sydney, and uh, yeah, it was just felt this incredible sense of freedom and um, excitement for this future that I had ahead of me. And when I turned up to Nasda, um, I think I was um, I was you know it was a bit of cultural shock actually because you know I'd never seen other Indigenous people like this before ever in my life. Um, in in the sense of dancers or? Oh, just in, in the sense of the diversity of Black people that were in that college, different cultural backgrounds and all different colours and, you know, it was just this incredible rich palette. What really struck me was the the confidence that they had that I'd never seen before ever you know that there was no shame people walked around proud and they were you know singing and talking language and that they were you know just openly you know displaying their sexuality and I mean I came from some you know little regional towns where you know I'd never seen anything like that so I was like oh my god this is fantastic and I think that first week I'd seen my first drag show and it was just I fell in love. I just honestly was like, wow, I just want this to be my tribe forever. <laughs> and I think all of us came with that same sense of displacement of like we weren't accepted by our communities and we weren't accepted by, you know, society um, in the little, you know, um, pocket areas where we're from, from around, you know, regional and remote Australia. and um, metropolitan Australia and I guess, you know, we found a home and NASDA just accepted, you know, the beauty of all of the diverse um, backgrounds and 
if you didn't know your mob, then you were still a part of this incredible clan of people, of young artists that were there to, um, you know, also on their own journeys. So, you know, it does become your family and it does become a very strong bonding experience. And so you graduate from NASDAQ and then you are accepted into yeah. Vangara. I wanted to ask about that. Is what What's that moment like and that experience like being accepted into Vangara? Well, I think people probably think, oh, yeah, Fran would have got in really easy and, you know. Um, I think I thought that. You know, she would have had to audition. It was, it, Stephen gave me the hardest time. Did like I, I actually had to work my ass off to, to get into the company. Um, Stephen. You know, I don't think he, yeah, he had, well, you know, he'd come out of Sydney Dance Company mm. and his partner was a ballerina from the New York City Ballet and, you know, so, so high I, standards. Had, his bar was, <laughs> yeah, so high, high standards. Stephen, so tough. He had a big vision <laughs> and he was really tough. And the thing is, is that I don't think I was, even though I had this incredible determination and I worked really hard, but I don't think I was naturally kind of, you know, like I, my body was tight and I put on muscle really easily and I wasn't the most flexible you know in and, and I used to see you know my peers just doing the splits and being able to kind of do these incredible developes and I just go oh I wish I had that flexibility and I think I was still looking at you know aesthetic and sh- you know the the shapes and you know and, and thinking that I needed to look like these other people. Mm. And probably the aesthetic at that time was still that very thin. I mean, particularly out of the ballet companies at that time. Yeah. Very thin. Dancers weren't muscular at that point. Yeah, that's right. And I didn't look like I had a, a, you know, well, I did in my head, I didn't think I looked very much like a dancer. I looked like an athlete, but I, you know, I kind of, I wanted to look like a skinny, you know, um, yeah. gazelle, mm. like, you know. Long, lean um, lines and, and long that sort and of. Long and lean mm. and tall and big lines and, yeah. Anyway, once I got over that, you know, <laughs> yep. I'm not going to look like that, but I am going to look like the best version of myself that I can be. But how great that you came through that because I feel like some people would sort of get that body image, you know, sort of fixation that some younger dancers do, but that yeah. you worked through that. Yeah, yeah. And so when were you allowed on stage? Oh, so I think it was like six months. Um, yeah, maybe about towards the end of my first year. Wow. Um, oh, that's, I thought you were going to say yeah, maybe like okay. six weeks. No, a whole year. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it was nearly a whole year. Um, I auditioned for the company and um, and I got in and uh, then Stephen said, and, and I was all amped up. I was like, oh, I'm ready to kind of, you know, learn the, the rep and, you know, to perform and go on stage. And Stephen's like, no, you're, you're actually going to um, stay on a traineeship. And, <laughs> what? Um, where you're going to understudy, but you're not going to be in any of the performances and, um, you know, you can do cultural, you know. Um, so I was able to perform cultural and I ended up kind of hanging out with, you know, um, all the cultural tutors and performers quite a bit because, you know, that was the only thing I could do. 
um, other than understudy. I, I and feel I remember like a lot of people would not know this story yeah, that yeah. Stephen actually <laughs> wouldn't let you on the stage. <laughs> he wouldn't let me on the stage. And then the one opportunity that I did get to go on the stage, I had uh, freaked out and forgot all the choreography. And I think I vomited three times and I just had this terrible, you know, stage fright. And um, Stephen was like, oh, my God, you forgot everything. And he said, but, you know, what you did was actually okay because you know, I just made up all this other choreography on the spot. He said, oh, well, it wasn't too bad. And so, um, but, yeah, I think, you know, those early days, you just, you know, um, it was it was hard. He was tough and he was really strict. And so when Stephen let you on the stage finally, d- did you always have the that that inspiration or that want to move into choreography or was that in the background uh, or did Steven see that yeah, in you? Yeah, it was always or, in the background. Was it, yeah. I think it was a bit of both. I think he he could he could definitely sense that, you know, I, I was a storyteller in my own way and um, and I think as, as, you know, we, you know, our, being amused for him, like myself and Russell, we, was this just this incredible, I remember being in the studio with them both and David would be creating music and going to his studio and coming back and, you know, Jakapura was in the studio and we could just, I mean, Stephen wouldn't have to talk. He would, uh, he wouldn't have to, he, he would just tell a story in Jakapura and myself and Russell would just respond. And working with Russell, we were, you know, we, we just understood each other um, on another level. Like I'd, I'd, I'd never come across a, and I don't think, yeah, probably ever, I had a partner like he could partner and, you know, complete trust. I could close my eyes and know that he was there and, yeah, just that incredible sense of, um, of um I guess, you know, two spirits coming together and um, just knowing, you know, from, and I've, I've heard other dancers talk about it, just being able to sense, um, sense their partner and where they're about to move to and how to kind of be able to compromise or um, give and take to kind of find that the, the nuances needed to create a, um, that connection with each other, yeah. Mm. It's really poignant to hear you speak of yours and Russell's connection on stage because the entire story of Bangara was showcased in a recent documentary that premiered on the ABC, yeah. Firestarter, um, the story of Bangara. And really it was that story of those three incredible Page brothers, Stephen Page, who's the artistic director of Bangara, Russell Page, the dancer, and then David Page, who really composed so much of the incredible music and the scores yeah. for Bangara. And then, you know, obviously that huge family tragedy um, where Russell and David have both taken their lives. W- was it hard to watch back or was it cathartic to hear those stories showcased again? Uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard, but it's also like, oh my god! Like we did all this stuff, and you know, it's you know, when you look back on it, you go, I didn't realize that we were, like, I didn't realize we were responding to politically what was happening in Australia at the time, and challenging that. That's what Bangara was doing. 
the fact that we were surviving and telling these stories in these, you know, really um, and reflecting the political climate at the time. Um, I mean, you were really, it was groundbreaking, but sort of it felt like Bangara sort of burst into that main arena at the same time as all this political conversation was happening. And you were sort of there in the centre of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just kind of holding this really, I think that's the platform that we held gave us this beautiful protection because we had, we were, telling these stories of social issues of, you know, and the trauma of the experiences of our people and but also we were able to kind of do it with the beautiful poetic protection of our choreography and that amazing music that carried the stories created by David Page and, you know, just having the, and you know, creatives that did these incredible sets and lighting and, but I remember when we first performed Ochres, we had, that was just done on, you know, two sticks and a rock at Belvoir Street Theatre and, you know, we had this, there was no set. I think we had, you know, some buckets with some ochre in it when we were doing white and um, we didn't know that, you know, it was going to be the success that it was, but people were like, oh, my God, the way they responded to it was like this is really groundbreaking and we've never had our stories told in this way before and it just had this power and this care and this elegance and this integrity and Jakapura kind of held this space, this deep cultural space and kept us grounded and, um, you know, and Bernadette just had this, you know, she was, she had a high bar as well. She was like, look, you know, especially for us women, you know, in the original version we, we danced topless and, um, I, I mean, remember myself and now. my sister were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's right. It's huge yeah. to do that in any, in any medium. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But we just, you know, Bernadette was like, you have to trust me. This is going to be good. And, you know, Stephen said, you know, um, we've got to start breaking down those walls that have been placed on us and we have to decolonize these practices so that we can tell our stories. Mm. And, and I think and actually that is... we accepted sorry. it and we looked at it like that. Mm. Oh, sorry, yeah. Once we looked at it like that, we went, okay, I can I can now see why this is important and, mm. yeah. Yeah. And so what I was going to say is just I actually think that is where the power of Bangara is because in those political storytelling, you don't get tripped up on the words and people don't get funny about, you know, am I saying the right or the wrong thing? It's just presented and people yeah, just right. have to accept it and then they can then, you know, reflect or feel uncomfortable or challenge their own thoughts. But it's just given to you in a way that, like, I think words can't can't ever be as powerful. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think people switch off. People are like, oh, here's another victim story or here's another, you know, sad Indigenous, you know, um, profile on, you know, petrol sniffing or, you know, something, and they just switch off and, you know, um, they don't want to know, they don't want to hear, they don't want to know what's happening in the fringes and the remote areas and the communities and, um, and the way our society is set up is that, you know, we have, you know, these different 
socioeconomic um, cities that are set up where, you know, wealthy people live on this side and, you know, um, if you're an artist, you might live here because, you know, there's affordable housing and if you're um, struggling, you know, with three kids and, you know, um, and you're a single parent, then you'll live out out west somewhere here and, you know, and it's so unfair because we we miss coming together to share and to celebrate and to enjoy what Australia is about, you know. You talked about your closeness with Russell in that um, artistic sense. Was it hard to stay with Bangara after he passed? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, that was, you know, that was incredibly. I mean, we went, we had to go and perform and continue. We were in the middle of a season when he passed and uh, we just finished our Sydney season and we were due to open the next week in Brisbane. And, um, yeah, we performed the next week and that was, I, I remember all of us coming off stage and collapsing. It was incredibly um, and incredibly difficult. But what held us um, together was his whole family. All, they all sat in the front row and, wow. yeah. I'm so sorry. And they carried us through. No, it's all right. And they carried us through and, you know, we were so happy to give back to them because they had shared him with us for so long. And, um, you know, and they're beautiful. I'll never forget that. And I'll never forget my time. And, you know, just having that magical experience um, of seeing those three brothers um, creating a work together and, just you know that's a gift and I'm one of the rare few people that were privy to that and I'll you know never take that for granted and yeah they're they're just precious memories and I think it's it is hard to talk about it but you know I don't want to be ashamed of you know speaking about death and you know speaking about loss and I think we should talk about the memories that that and the legacy that he left and, you know, his legacy still lives today and the young men of the company who, you know, follow in his footsteps and just revere him and they say, oh, tell me stories about him. What was he like? And, you know, that's such a beautiful honour to be able to tell those stories and that they're still, you know, and to keep his memory alive. And that's, oh, you know, why we have the Russell Page Graduate Programme traineeship so that you know we're nurturing the next generation of young artists coming through um and um you know and in honor of him yeah mm. and and you and him really yeah, it's hard yeah but, you know. yeah that just that he together with you and and the dancers of that time really forged Bangara yeah. into this new level of dance company that didn't exist in Australia and has gone on to what feels like a yeah. powerhouse company at the moment. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is that there was nothing, before, you know, there was, I think we, because it was all new and we were working with this new form and we were growing it and developing it together and breathing and believing in this vision that Stephen had and all contributing and feeding into that. and 
you know, that's, I don't think we were second guessing ourselves or saying, oh, you know, we can't do this because it's, you know, we just, we had nothing to lose. So we just risked and, you know, um, all believed in the same thing and, mm. and it we sounds were able like- to kind of, you know, um, to grow it, yeah. Mm. And it sounds like from what you were saying before is you didn't even realise until perhaps, you know, having the hindsight and even, you know, I guess seeing where Bangara is today, of the, the impact that you were having yeah. at that time because you were just believing in something yeah. and working together. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, I mean, even looking back at Firestarter and seeing the Olympics and still getting those goosebumps and going oh my god I remember the moment that the the Wangina came up and all of us you could feel the whole stadium just all sucked in their breath and there was this silence as this Wangina just grew from the ground and I felt like everything changed after that because there was this sense of pride in in our Indigenous cultures because we got a lot of backlash for being involved in the Olympics and we should have boycotted and all of this, you know. Um, yeah, there was a lot. It was really hard and, you know, Stephen was like, no, we have to do this. We have to represent the diversity of li- living culture and language that has survived genocide, stolen generation, government policies that have been implemented to see us, you know, um, you know, see us fail. But we have to show that we are alive and we are strong and we are powerful and we have young people that are, you know, um, that are going to step into, you know, um, uh, into the next generation. You know, they're going to be carrying these stories and these this culture going forward into the future. Um, but looking back and seeing that um, was really, really um, quite powerful and it's like, oh, wow, I can't, cannot believe we did that. It still blows my mind. Wow. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, and I think female dancers struggle with this, is how you made the choice to step away to to become a mum. I actually wanted to. <laughs> I I think once I. I kind of felt like my um, when I was with I was only with the dancing with the company for twelve years. Um, uh, only I, I love that twelve years. <laughs> That's huge for a for a dancer's like, career. I mean, this is like <laughs> in a company where like Elma Chris is still performing. Mm, that's you know, true. With the company and you know she's an icon now. So I'm like, <laughs> oh well. In in terms of you know the the others, mine is relatively short, but um. But I think I was really, I knew when I wanted to move because uh, when I wanted to step away because I just, I'd lost my passion and um, I think I just burnt out. We were, you know, Oka's was a big success and, you know, after the Olympics things only got more busier and I think we just, um, you know, I really felt like I kind of had a really rich um life as a performer um I'd met my husband Scott and we got married and I really you know wanted to wanted us to have our own family and I wanted a home I'd never had home before and I think because of you know just my upbringing being so transient 
I was just hungry to have somewhere that we could just, you know, live and just grow, you know, have our have our life and um and have children and be able to and I kind of thought I'd I wanted to know if there was more to me as a person as well. Mm. Um, Did becoming a mum change you? Yeah, and becoming a mum absolutely changed me. And I think when you're in the little bubble of being the performer and with a company and you're just working in and out and you, you know, going on tour in the rehearsals and then performing and then touring and just becomes this endless cycle and you have your own little selfish way of surviving and um I just really needed to kind of reset and find a new um, who, what else, the, who else I was as a person. And, um, and yeah, so I think stepping away and becoming a mother was a big decision. Um, but also I was determined to not give up my career as well. I was like, well, I, you know, I still want to choreograph and I still want to guest and I still want to do all of this. I've just got to, make sure that I plan and, um, and uh, you know, be able to, um, I guess, make sure that I have the support around me to be able to, um, to, to work and also um, be a mother and find that balance like every other working parent in mm. the world. And The eternal uh, juggle. My kids, you know, yeah, my, my children know the theatre very well. They, and rehearsal studios, you know, they, Often find myself having to breastfeed in a studio <laughs> while I was, you know, <laughs> yep. or going out to express while I was. But you know, you do these things and you um, uh, adapt and grow and evolve. And some days are good, and some days it's like, okay, I'm not superwoman. I just need to stop and just um, give myself a break and stop trying to be everything to everyone. Mm. So finally, let's get to Sansong. Um, it, it already had this ridiculously incredible journey to make it to the stage. It endured COVID in 2020. And then it finally made it to the stage, Sydney Opera House, of all the stages in June this year. Um, I actually reread what I had written about it and... It was such a powerful work and, you know, we touched on it before, but that, you know, without having words to trip over, it can just be so much more impactful and, I mean, it got, what, rave reviews. It was just a powerhouse of a work. Can you tell us what happened after it um, it premiered in Sydney? Oh, you know, we had a, a good few weeks on stage and then everything kind of, um, you know, uh, blew up in Sydney and um, the show had to come down early. But um, but uh, what time we did have was absolutely invaluable and we actually got our, cult, our, um, our uh, cultural consultants over from... Um, all the way from their little community outside of um, Fitzroy Crossing in WA. They came to Sydney. They saw the work. They got to, like, have some time with the dancers on stage. And, um, yeah, it was just amazing. And we just got that little window where we were able to fly <laughs> them over. And, 
Because um, that Western and, Australian you know, border comes down pretty quick. So. It does, absolutely, pretty quick. <laughs> they um, just got they, in and they out they then. no qualms. We're just slamming that door it, shut. Yeah. But we just, we got them over and we had such a beautiful time. It was amazing. And the dancers loved it. And just to have them there for the opening night and have them bring them on stage. Mm. And sharing and that, that tiny remote community and their life. Yeah, and right. yeah. Just to, yeah. to, it just was such a sort of incredible juxtaposition to see this tiny remote community being celebrated on the stage of the yeah. Sydney Opera House. Just yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. And these, you know, these experience of experiences of desert people that were, you know, due to government policies and, you know, um, you know, removed off their land and then you know forced onto stations and used as labor and then you know with the um the coming of the pastoral act then they were removed again and you know had no jobs and had to start again from the beginning and oh the resilience and but the biggest thing that is inspiring is that they never talk negative about these experiences they're always like well this is what have what shaped who we are we're strong people. We're strong desert people, just as we've always been. We survive and we still teach law and culture to our children today. Francis, one final question. Um, yeah. And it's a biggie, but I just wanted to ask, I mean, you are a female, you're a First Nations female, and you're in a position of leadership in this country. Does that come with responsibilities or with weight do you feel the pressure of that position? Yeah, I feel it It, it does. Um, and there are times where I go, oh, God, this is, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's weight but it's also a sense of I guess it's an honour as well because I know that and sometimes I go, Oh God, am I the, am I the right person, or and you know uh, is this um, am I doing the right thing? You know, and I guess every person who is in that position has to you know they turn to question themselves and they ask themselves those questions of like, is this the right thing to be doing, and are you doing it the best way that you know how? I like to think at Bangara that when we uh, when we work together and we make decisions, that it's done in a really collaborative way, that it's not just the weight placed on one person, but it's shared. And culturally, when we make decisions and um, you don't have one person who stands up, you know, and speaks above everybody else, but it's something that is talked and discussed. And the, the, this company was set up with cultural values at its core. And a week, are we keeping, um, are we caring for those cultural values? Um, are we caring for the integrity of the company? And is this something that is going to change the perspectives of, of, of Indigenous Australia and, um, and bring about positive changes? You know, I think that storytelling is one of the most powerful tools that you can use to change perspectives and to shift societies. Um, views and, you know, to be able to offer and, you know, some insight and a glimpse into, um, into Indigenous Australia and, you know, 
be able to break down some of those um, those walls, be able to and you know um, preconceived you know um, ideas of who we are as Indigenous people and um, and our experience, and to be able to tell it as a story and, and through this powerful form of of um, contemporary Indigenous dads is such a gift. And I think that that's if I honour that, and I think to you know, my original, when I was five years old and I was trying to make sense of the world and I did it through that language um, and I communicated through my first language, which was movement, and um, and it's never failed me. So I just try to trust that and listen to that. Thank you so much. It's just been an absolute honour. And, um, yeah, just to hear you speak and I know so many young girls and young Indigenous dancers look up to you. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It's lovely to chat with you. Thanks, Frances. Bye. Bye. Since we spoke, Frances and all of Bangara have completed their 14-day quarantine in the Northern Territory and now head to Queensland to perform Sand Song, stories from the Great Sandy Desert. For dates, locations and to buy tickets, head to bangara.com.au or head to their Insta page at Bangara Dance Theatre. And to continue to follow Frances on her incredible journey, she's on Instagram at Fran Rings. Frances and I recorded remotely, with Frances dialing in from quarantine in Howard Springs in the Northern Territory, the land of the Lurakia people, to which we pay our greatest respects. On the next episode, you'll hear from Daniel Riley, the newly appointed Artistic Director of the Australian Dance Theatre. It was really wonderful to be at Bangara. It can get very intense for that kind of an ensemble being with each other kind of day in, day out, planes, trains, taxis, Ubers. It's like family Christmas, but for 11 months of the year. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, additional production by Penelope Ford, with editing and sound production by Martin Peralta. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com. If this episode has triggered any thoughts or feelings and you'd like to chat to someone, please contact Beyond Blue in Australia or for anywhere else in the world, please contact your local support group.